In this dream or vision from St. John Bosco's life, God reveals the importance of prayer, fasting, devotion to Mary, and the Eucharist. It's essential for anyone trying to make it to heaven. But just be warned, these dreams are pretty frightening. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Both Scripture and the lives of saints demonstrate that God also uses dreams to guide His servants. Don Bosco was singularly favored with this charism from his childhood, when the mission was first revealed to him, and then throughout his whole life, when he was shown the path to follow, the expansion of his apostolate, and the most effective means for its success. By fatherly and consistently heroic care, he sought to guide the young on their spiritual way by instilling into them God's love and hatred of sin. In return, the Lord opened to him singular vistas whose simple description gave his words wondrous effectiveness. At other times, God clearly showed him the precise spiritual state of his boys, pointing out how he might best draw them to the worthy reception of the sacraments, true devotion to Our Lady, love of purity, and a constant awareness of being prepared for a sudden death. Besides prompting him to stress particular norms of life to his spiritual sons, God, from time to time, also showed him the course to follow in certain circumstances. We may well say that even when asleep, Don Bosco never left his spiritual sons and remained united with God. The first vision in today's episode is from Don Bosco's letter to the Salesian School of Lonzo, dated February 11, 1871. Dearly beloved sons, the letter began, though I usually stay at the oratory at this time of year, I would like to come and spend the last days of the carnival season with you, my dear sons in Jesus Christ. Your affection, so often demonstrated, and your letters have led me to this decision. However, a far more important reason is the visit I paid to you a few days ago without you or your superiors being aware of it. It's a frightful and very sad story. When I got to the church square, I saw a horrible monster. It had huge blazing eyes, a thick short snout, a large mouth, a sharply pointed chin, dog-like ears, and two horns, much like those of a big ram. It was playing with a few of its own kind. Beast of hell, what are you doing here? I asked in terror. I'm playing because I have nothing else to do. I'd like to believe that. Have you decided to leave my boys alone? Why should I bother them? I have marvelous substitutes there. A choice group of pupils who have volunteered to work faithfully for me. I don't believe you, you base liar. We have so many practices of piety, spiritual reading, meditation, confession. He laughed mockingly and motioned me to follow him into the sacristy where Father Director was hearing confessions. As you see, some boys don't like me, he remarked. But even here, many serve my interests by making promises and breaking them. They keep confessing the same sins, and that just delights me. Then he took me to a dormitory and pointed out several lads who had no intention at all of going to Mass. He singled out one. This fellow, he said, came pretty near to death and made God a thousand promises, but now he's become so much worse than before. 
He then took me to the other areas of the house and showed me things I could have never believed. I won't mention them now, but I'll tell you in person. After we returned to the church square where the other monsters had stayed, I asked him, what's the best help these boys give you? Their talk. That's the main thing. Every word is a seed which bears astounding fruit. Who are your worst enemies? Boys who go to communion. What hurts you the most? Devotion to Mary and... But here he stopped, unwilling to continue. And what's the second? In an emotional outburst, he successively took on the appearance of a dog, a cat, a bear, and a wolf. Almost simultaneously, he now had three horns, now five, now ten, with three, five, or seven heads. I was shaking like a leaf while the monster was trying to slink away. Determined to get to the bottom of the matter, I commanded him, I demand that you tell me what thing you fear most here. I order you in the name of God, our creator and master, whom we both must obey. As I spoke, all the monsters writhed and kept assuming frightful shapes I hoped to never see again. Then, amid horrible shrieks, they screamed, What hurts most and we fear most is carrying out resolutions made in confession. With frightful, deafening shrieks, the monsters vanished like lightning, and I found myself sitting at my desk. The rest I will tell you in person and explain it all to you. God bless us. Yours affectionately in Jesus Christ, Father John Bosco. Before we continue on to the second vision in this episode, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. During his good night talk on February 5th, 1865, Don Bosco began, Two or three nights ago, I had a dream. Would you like to hear it? All responded, yes. You're very dear to me, and so you're always in my dreams. I seemed to be in the playground with you swarming around me. Each one held a rose, a lily, a violet, or both a rose and a lily, or some other flower. Suddenly, a huge, ugly cat, black as coal, appeared. It had horns, eyes as red as live coals, long, sharp claws, and a disgustingly swollen belly. This ugly beast edged stealthily close to you, and in a flash clawed your flowers to the ground. When I first spotted this hideous creature, I was terrified. But to my astonishment, you seemed totally unconcerned. Seeing it creep toward me to knock my flowers down, I immediately turned to dash off. But someone stopped me. Don't run away, he said. Just tell your boys to raise their arms up high beyond the beast's reach. I did as he told me. The monster tried hard to jump up, but its weight made it fall back clumsily to the ground. The lily, my dear sons, symbolizes the beautiful virtue of purity, against which the devil wages endless war. Woe to those who keep their flower low. The devil will snatch it from them. Such are those who pamper the flesh by overeating, or eating between meals, who shirk work and idle away their time, who are fond of certain conversations or books, and who shun self-denial. For goodness sake, my children, fight this enemy, or it will enslave you. 
These victories are hard to win, but Holy Scripture tells us the means to use. This kind of devil can be cast out only by prayer and fasting from the Gospel of Matthew. Raise your arm and your flower will be safe. Purity is a heavenly virtue. Whoever wishes to safeguard it must raise himself heavenward. Prayer is your salvation. By prayer, I mean your morning and night prayers, devoutly said, meditation and holy mass, frequent confession and communion, sermons and exhortations, visits to the Blessed Sacrament, the Rosary, and your school duties. By prayer, you will rise heavenward. Thus, you will safeguard the most beautiful of virtues. Try as much as he wants, the devil will not be able to snatch it from you. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco had an incredible knack for recognizing and defining evil when he saw it. He could tell exactly who the bad boys were, those who showed a tendency for evil, even in the smallest things. If these boys didn't improve after several warnings, they were sent away, lest they contaminate the rest of his flock. I'm going to try to show you his great discernment in rooting out evil so that you too can practice it in your own life. But who am I to interpret his writings? I have to rely on other great men to do so, and it will be through the lens of the great Catholic thinker Plinio Correa de Oliveira. At the end of the video, I'll finish with a quote from St. John Bosco that shows how he dealt with boys that sided with the devil. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If anything characterizes our times, it's a sense of pervading chaos. In every field of human endeavor, the windstorms of change are fast altering the ways we live. Contemporary man is no longer anchored in certainties and thus has lost sight of who he really is, where he comes from, and where he's going. If there's a single book that can shed light amid the postmodern darkness, it's Revolution and Counter-Revolution by Plinio Correa de Oliveira. In a masterly display of penetrating Catholic scholarship, this extraordinary Brazilian author and man of action traced the processes of history that have shaped the postmodern man. The book's impressive analysis of a revolutionary process born of pride and sensuality begins with the Middle Ages and decadence, proceeds to a neo-pagan renaissance and pseudo-reformation, then to the French Revolution and atheistic communism. The third part deals with the fourth revolution, or the cultural revolution of the 60s that gave birth to our confusing postmodern times. Perhaps the most important part of this book is the section on the counter-revolution. Professor Plinio showed how to implement truly counter-revolutionary action at the service of the church. He discussed the tactics to be used and the pitfalls to be avoided. This highly acclaimed work is a sort of manual that all Catholics can have recourse to in resisting the neo-pagan revolution of our days. It's a powerful tool for making sense of the pervading chaos. But what does all this have to do with St. John Bosco? Well, Professor Plinio once read a short passage from Don Bosco's biography from which he deduced many characteristics of the revolution. The oratory was a microcosm of public opinion in the world at large. Professor Plinio wrote, Paging through the writings of St. John Bosco, I found the following telltale observation. Don Bosco said, 
First, in regards to evil people, I will say something which may seem unbelievable, but which, in fact, is really true. Let us suppose that among a group of 500 schoolchildren, one is corrupt. Then another perverted student arrives. Both are from different regions and places. They never knew or saw each other. Despite all this, on the second day of school, maybe after a few hours, they're found together during recess. An evil spirit seems to make them guess who else is stained by their same type of darkness. Or it's as if a diabolic magnet pulls them together to create an intimate friendship. The saying, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are, is a simple means to single out sheep with skin disease before they turn into voracious wolves. They are not for regular schools. The testimony of such a true observer, experienced and competent in the field of teaching, cannot be questioned. Nevertheless, this statement presents an easily recognizable fact before us, even among adults, found in the routine episodes of everyday life, as well as in the great events of history. When evil reaches a certain level of profundity in souls, these acquire a sharp perception which enables them to pick out like-minded souls from afar, noticing things that would seem insignificant to anyone else. Such sharpened perception is interwoven with another peculiarity, a mutual attraction that quickly unites them in close friendship, despite the numerous circumstances that may separate them, such as different birthplaces or age. This is the foundation of a group, or even a trend, that operates like a tumor, distilling poison. This is what happens after that. This bad friendship encourages their bad behavior in direct opposition to the good ambience in which they find themselves. This way of being necessarily engenders antipathies, frictions, and hatred against the majority. Then hatred leads to a fight. This is an inevitable consequence. He who feels uneasy in a particular ambience struggles to change it, and upon stumbling into obstacles, struggles to eliminate them. If these obstacles don't give way passively, a fight breaks out. This fight leads the bad ones to try to increase the number of its followers and find reinforcements. Having put together an opposition force, organization is only natural at this point. Bad people with the same mentality and objectives will soon put together an ideological system, a program, and a common technique of action and build a leadership group. This is how a few evil ones can immediately recognize the same mentality in one another, get in touch, and form an organization. We can see this in the occult masonry, semi-occult Jansenism or modernism, or openly declared as Lutheranism or communism. This organization proposes to fight in all fields, ideological, artistic, social, political, economical, etc., in conquest of its goals. In a word, it performs revolution. Now, what's the role of the devil in this fight, or at least its action in the phenomenon described by St. John Bosco? The saint clearly admits preternatural action as plausible. The devil was the first author and continues to be the principal factor of the revolution. I'll end this video with a final quote from this great saint, which shows how he had no interest in keeping boys with evil tendencies at his oratory. He had just told them of a mystical dream in which the devil appeared in the form of a fiendish elephant, 
and was vanquished by Our Lady. To our saint's disdain, some boys standing alongside the devil were swallowed into hell, boys who were listening in the audience at his good night talk. So we said to them, to finish, It is now up to you, my sons. Examine your conscience to know if you are safe under Mary's mantle, if the elephant flung you into the air, or if you wielded a sword. All I can repeat is what the virgin said. Come you all to me. Run to her. Call her in any danger, and I assure you that your prayers will be heeded. Those badly mauled by the elephant must learn to avoid foul talk and bad companions. Those striving to entice their companions from Mary must change their ways or leave this house immediately. Now if anyone wants to know which role he played, let him come to my room and I'll tell him. I repeat, Satan's accomplices must either mend their ways or go. Good night. Thank you all so much for watching. And if you'd like to see a playlist with more dreams of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Dream of Battle In his good night talk on April 30th, Don Bosco exhorted the boys to make devoutly the May devotions. After urging them, therefore, to greater diligence in the fulfillment of their duties and the choice of some special act of devotion in honor of Mary, he added that he had a dream to tell them. But since it was already late, he would tell it on the following Sunday, May 4th. The boys were beside themselves with impatience. Their curiosity was further aroused by another two days' postponement because Don Bosco was too busy. Finally, on the evening of May 4th, their curiosity was satisfied. After prayers, Don Bosco addressed them, as usual, from the little pulpit. He said, Here I am to keep my promise. As the time for the retreat drew near, I was wondering how my boys would make it, and what I should suggest to make it fruitful. On Sunday night, April 25th, the eve of the retreat, I went to bed with this thought in mind. I fell asleep immediately, and I seemed to be standing all alone in a very vast valley enclosed on both sides by high hills. At the far end of the valley along one side, where the ground rose steeply, there was a pure, bright light. The other side was in semi-darkness. As I stood gazing at the plain, Buzzetti and Gastini came up to me and said, "'Don Bosco, you'll have to mount a horse!' Hurry, hurry. Are you joking? I said. You know how long it's been since I last rode a horse? They insisted. But in an attempt to excuse myself, I kept repeating, I don't want to ride a horse. I did it once and fell off. Gastini and Buzzetti kept pressing me ever more and said, Get on a horse and quickly. There's no time to lose. But suppose I do mount a horse. Where are you taking me? You'll see. Now hurry and mount. But where's the horse? I don't see any. There it is, shouted Gastini, pointing to one side of the valley. I looked and saw a beautiful spirited steed. It had long, strong legs, a thick mane, and a very glossy coat. Well, since you want me to mount it, I will. But woe to you if I fall, I said. Don't worry, they replied. We'll be here with you for any emergency. 
and if I break my neck, you'll have to fix it, I told Buzzetti. He then broke into a laugh. This is no time to laugh, Gastini muttered. We walked over to the horse. Even with their help, I had great difficulty mounting, but finally I was in the saddle. How tall that horse seemed to be then. It was as if I were perched on top of a high mound from which I could survey the entire valley from end to end. Then the horse started to move. Strangely, while this was happening, I seemed to be in my own room. I asked myself, where are we? Coming toward me, I saw priests, clerics, and others. All looked frightened and breathless. After a long ride, the horse stopped. Then I saw all the priests of the oratory together, with many of the clerics approaching. They gathered around the horse. I recognized them, Father Rua, Father Caliero, and Father Bologna among them. When they reached me, they stopped and silently stared at my horse. I noticed that all seemed worried. Their disquiet was such as I have never seen before. I beckoned to Father Bologna. Father Bologna, I said, you're in charge at the main entrance. Can you tell me what happened? Why do you all look so upset? I don't know where I am or what I'm doing, he said. I'm all confused. Some people came in, talked, and left. There's such a hubbub of people coming and going at the main entrance that I don't know what's going on. Is it possible, I wondered, that something very unusual might happen today? Just then, someone handed me a trumpet, saying I should hold on to it because I would need it. Where are we now, I asked. Blow the trumpet, they said. I did and heard these words. We are in the land of trial. Then I saw a multitude of boys, I think over a hundred thousand coming over the hills. There was absolute silence. They were carrying pitchforks and hastening toward the valley. I recognized among them all the oratory boys and those of our other schools, but there were many more unknown to me. Just then, on one side of the valley, the sky darkened, and hordes of animals resembling lions and tigers appeared. These ferocious beasts had big bodies, strong legs and long necks, but their heads were quite small. They were terrifying. With bloodshot eyes bulging from their sockets, they hurled themselves at the boys, who immediately stood ready to defend themselves. As the animals attacked, the boys stood firm and beat them off with their pronged pitchforks, which they lowered or raised as needed. Unable to overpower them by this first attack, the beasts snapped at the fork prongs only to break their teeth and vanish. Some of the boys, however, had forks with only one prong, and these boys were heavily wounded. Others had pitchforks with broken or worm-eaten handles, and still others threw themselves at the beasts barehanded and fell victims. Quite a few of these were killed. Many had pitchforks with two prongs and new handles. While this was going on, from the very start, swarms of serpents slithered about my horse. Kicking and stamping, the horse crushed and drove them off. At the same time, it kept growing ever taller and taller. I asked someone what the two-pronged forks symbolized. I was handed a fork, and on the prongs I read these two words, confession on one, communion on the other. But what do the prongs mean? 
blow the trumpet, someone said. I did and heard these words, good confession and good communion. I blew the trumpet again and heard these words, broken handle, sacrilegious confessions and communions, worm-eaten handle, faulty confessions. Now that the first attack was over, I rode over the battlefield and saw many dead and wounded. I saw that some of the dead had been strangled and their necks were swollen and deformed. Still others had starved to death while enticing food was within their reach. The boys who were strangled are those who unfortunately committed some sins in their early years and never confessed them. Those with disfigured faces are gluttons, and the boys who died of hunger, those who go to confession but never follow the advice or admonitions of their confessor. Next to each boy whose pitchfork had a worm-eaten handle, a word stood out. For some it was pride, for others sloth, for others still immodesty, etc. I must also add that in their march, the boys had to walk over a bed of roses. They liked it, but after a few steps, they would utter a cry and fall to the ground, either dead or wounded, because of the thorns hidden underneath. Others instead bravely trampled on those roses and encouraging one another marched on to victory. Then the sky darkened again. Instantly, even greater hordes of the same animals or monsters appeared. All this happened in less than three or four seconds. My horse was surrounded. The monsters increased beyond count, and I too began to be frightened. I could feel them clawing at me. Then someone handed me a pitchfork, and I also began to fight them, and the monsters were forced to retreat. Beaten in their first attack, they all vanished. Then I blew the trumpet again, and these words echoed through the valley. Victory! Victory! Victory, I wondered. How is it possible with so many dead and wounded? And if you'd like to hear the answer to that question, just come back Friday for part two of this dream. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This episode has some of the most beautiful and touching words I've ever heard from St. John Bosco because he was describing the oratory boy's paths to heaven. He really could see their future and which paths would lead them to their eternal goal. This is part two of Don Bosco's dream of battle, and if you'd like to see part one, just click on the link above me here. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. I blew the trumpet once more, and we heard the words, Truce for the Vanquished. The sky brightened, and a rainbow became visible. It was so lovely and so colorful that I can't describe it. It was immense, as though one end rested on top of Superga and its arch stretched and stretched until it reached the top of Moncenisio. I should also add that all the boys who had been victorious wore crowns so brilliant and so bright and varied in color that it was an awe-inspiring sight. Their faces, too, were resplendently handsome. At the far end of the valley, on one side, under the center of the rainbow, there was a sort of balcony holding people full of joy and of such varied beauty as to surpass my imagination. A very noble lady, royally arrayed, came to the railing of this balcony and called out, Come, my children, and take shelter under my mantle. As she spoke, 
an immense mantle spread out, and all the boys ran to take cover under it. Some actually flew. These had the word innocence on their forehead. Others just walked, and some crawled. I also started to run, and in that split second, it couldn't have been more than that, I said to myself, this had better end or we'll die. I had just said this and was still running when I woke up. For reasons later explained, he returned to this subject on May 6th, the Feast of the Ascension. He had the students and the artisans assembled together for night prayers, and then spoke as follows. The other night I wasn't able to say everything because we had visitors in our midst. These things must be kept among us, and no one should write to friends or relatives about them. I confide everything in you, even my sins. That valley, that land of trial, is this world. The semi-darkness is the place of perdition. The two hills are the commandments of God and the church. The serpents are the devils. The monsters, evil temptations. The horse, I think, is the same as the one that struck Heliodorus and represents our trust in God. The boys who walked over the roses and fell dead are those who give in to this world's pleasures that deal death to the soul. Those who trampled the roses underfoot are those who spurn worldly pleasures and are therefore victorious. The boys who flew under the mantle are those who have preserved their baptismal innocence. For the sake of those who might wish to know, little by little I shall tell those concerned the kind of weapon they carried, and whether they were victorious or not, dead or wounded. I did not know all the boys, but I recognized those of the oratory, and if the others were ever to come here, I would recognize them immediately the moment I saw them. Father Bello, his secretary, who took down this dream, wrote that he could not remember many things that Don Bosco narrated and explained at length. The next morning, May 7th, when he was with Don Bosco, he asked him, How can you possibly remember all the boys you saw in your dream and tell each one the state he was in and pinpoint his faults? Oh, Don Bosco answered, by means of otis boris pietutis. This was a meaningless nonsense phrase that he often used to evade embarrassing questions. When Father Barbaris also broached the same subject, Don Bosco answered gravely, It was a great deal more than a dream, and cutting the talk short, he passed on to other things. Father Berto ends his report with these words, I, too, the writer of this report, asked him about my part in this dream. His answer was so much to the point that I burst into tears and said, An angel from heaven could not have hit the truth better. Once again, this dream was the theme of another good night talk on June 4th. But before we hear Don Bosco's incredible explanation of this dream, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. The community was present at this dialogue between Father Barbaris and Don Bosco, Father Barbaris began, With your permission, Don Bosco, this evening I would like to ask a few questions. I didn't dare to these last few evenings because we had visitors. I'd just like some clarification on your last dream. Go ahead, replied Don Bosco in his customary relaxed manner. It's some time since I last mentioned it, but it doesn't matter. 
Now, you said at the end of your dream that some flew to Mary's mantle, some ran, others walked slowly, and a few sloshed through mud, were bespattered with it, and were hardly able to take cover under the mantle. You already told us that those who flew were the pure. We can easily understand those who ran, but what is meant by those who got stuck in the mud? Don Bosco answered, Those who got stuck in the mud, and who, for the most part, couldn't reach Our Lady's mantle, symbolize those attached to the things of this world. Being selfish, they think only of themselves, and because of this, they bespatter themselves with mud, and are no longer able to get off the ground and aspire to the things of heaven. They see the Blessed Virgin calling to them and would like to go to her. They take a few steps, but mud holds them down. It always happens like that. The Lord says, where thy treasure is, there also will your heart be. Those who do not raise themselves up to the treasures of grace set their hearts on the things of this world. Pleasures, riches, success in business, vainglory are all they think of. Heaven is just ignored. Now there's something else you didn't tell us about, Don Bosco. You mentioned it to some, privately, and I wish you would let us know, too. It's this. Someone asked you whether he was among those who ran or those who walked slowly, and if he had taken cover under the mantle of Mary, and if the handle of his pitchfork was worm-eaten or broken. You replied that you had been unable to see clearly because there was a cloud between you and him. Don Bosco replied, You're a theologian and you should know that. Anyway, there were indeed some boys, though not very many, whom I could not see clearly. I saw each of them well enough to recognize them, but that was about all. Those are the boys who are tight-lipped with their superiors. They don't open their hearts to them. They're not sincere. Whenever they see a superior coming their way, rather than meet him, they go off in the opposite direction. Some of them came to ask me in what state I had seen them in the dream. But what could I tell them? I could have said, you have no confidence in your superiors. You never open your heart to them. Now all of you remember this. There is nothing that can be of greater help to you than opening your hearts to your superiors, having great trust in them, and being utterly sincere. Father Barbaris hesitated. There's something else I'd like to ask, but I'm afraid you might say I'm too curious. Don Bosco replied good-naturedly, Isn't that fairly well known anyway? There was general laughter at that. Yet, you know, there is a certain kind of curiosity which is healthy. As, for example, when a boy, anxious to learn, keeps asking questions about serious things from persons who might know. There are others instead who just stand around like fools. They never have any questions to ask. This is not a good reflection on them. So then, Father Barbaris continued with his question. Well, I won't be like that. For a long time, I have wanted to ask you this question about the dream. Did you see only each boy's past, or did you also see his future, that is, his vocation and his possible success? Don Bosco replied, I saw more than the past. I also saw the future that was to be theirs. Each boy had several paths stretching out ahead of him. Some were narrow and thorny. Others were strewn with sharp nails. But God's blessings had also been strewn on these paths. All these paths led to a garden of rare beauty, filled with every delight. Father Barbaris asked, Then this means that you can tell which path each one should take? 
That is, you know the vocation of each one of us, how we shall end up, and which path we shall follow? No, Don Bosco answered. It wouldn't be wise to tell each one which path he will follow or how he will end up. No good will result from telling a boy, you will take the path of wickedness. This would only frighten him. Now what I can say is this. If one follows a certain path, he may be sure that he's on the road to heaven, on the road, namely, to which he has been called. And if one doesn't follow that road, he will not be on the right path. Some roads are narrow, uneven, and strewn with thorns. Yet take heart, my dear children. With the thorns, there is also the grace of God. And so much happiness is in store for us at the end of our journey that we shall soon forget all our pain. Honestly, I would like all of you to remember this. This was a dream, and no one is obliged to believe it. However, I have noticed that those who have asked me for my explanations have accepted my suggestions in good part. Nevertheless, do as St. Paul says, Probate spiritus et quod bonum est tenete. Test all things, hold fast that which is good. Another thing that I would never want you to forget is to pray for your poor Don Bosco, lest the words of St. Paul, after preaching to others, I myself should be rejected, may apply to me. That is, after preaching to you, I may end up with the damned. I'm doing my best to warn you. I worry about you and give you advice, but I fear I may be acting like a brooding hen that hunts for crickets, worms, seeds, and other food for her chicks while she herself may die of hunger unless she gets some good nourishment. Therefore, I pray to God for me that this may not happen, but that instead I may adorn my heart with many virtues and be pleasing to God so that one day all of us may go to heaven to enjoy him and glorify him. Good night. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. By the time he was nine years old, young John Bosco could be seen putting on his own shows. Tightrope walking, juggling, sleight of hand, and puppetry attracted many boys, sometimes a hundred at a time, watching. The price of admission to these shows? Let us say Our Lady's Rosary, said the young showman. His audience knelt and gladly obeyed. Today we'll hear about a singular event that occurred in his boyhood when John challenged some traveling charlatans who were interfering with church services to match their prowess against his. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In 1825, as a mere boy of 10, he started on a small scale what later he would call a festive oratory, doing what was in keeping with his age and his knowledge. He followed these lines for several years, his talks becoming ever more fruitful as his knowledge of religion increased. For this purpose, he diligently gathered edifying stories from catechism classes, sermons, and books he had read in order to instill love of virtue in all his listeners. But it wasn't only his stories, tricks, and lovable traits that captured the hearts of so many youngsters. In those early years and throughout his life to his dying day, there must have shown through his whole countenance the
the purity of his soul. To meet him, to be near him, produced a joy, a peace of mind, a delight, and such an ardent desire to become better that it couldn't be traced to a purely earthly affection. Thousands of boys have experienced this, and it has been confirmed by thousands of others who worked together with him. Once they knew John Bosco, they could no longer detach themselves from him, nor could they ever forget his magnetic personality. But the field of action to which Margaret's son had been destined by Providence was far greater than might have been imagined in the beginning. This was becoming obvious, and proof of it can be seen in various episodes in which it would seem impossible that a mere boy could be so certain of himself. The following incidents will serve to strengthen this point. When John was about twelve, a dance was held on a certain holy day at the public square of Morialdo. When it was time for the afternoon church services, John entered the square and began to move about the crowd, among whom he saw many persons he knew. He tried to persuade them to bring the dance to an end and go instead to church for vespers. Look at this child, still wet behind the ears, trying to tell us what to do, someone remarked. Who sent you on this nice little errand to act as our preacher or spiritual director, asked another. Just like you to butt into our business and bother us when we're enjoying ourselves, added a third. Mind your own business and don't put your nose where it doesn't belong, rudely sneered a fourth. And they all laughed in his face. John then began to sing a popular religious hymn, in so beautiful and harmonious a voice that little by little they all gathered around him. A few moments later he moved toward the church, and the others, drawn by his voice, followed him in. Toward nightfall he returned to the scene of the dancing that had been resumed with wild frenzy. It was getting dark now, and John remarked to those who seemed more sensible than the rest, it's time to go home. This is no time for dancing. No one listened to him, so he began to sing again as he had done before. At the sweet, magic-like sound of his voice, the dancing ceased, and the dance floor was soon vacant. Everyone gathered around him, and when he had finished his song, several offered him gifts to resume his singing. He refused the gifts, but went on singing nonetheless. The organizers of the dance, who saw their prophets vanishing into thin air, took him aside and offered him money, saying, Look, either you take this money and leave, or else we'll give you a beating you'll never forget. N now wait just a minute. Do you own this place? replied John. You don't scare me. I can do as I please. Some of my relatives are here, and they're expected home. I'm not doing you any wrong in calling them. Their families are afraid that something unpleasant may happen to them, some brawl or harm. Why keep them worrying? I think you're sensible and decent enough to agree that at this time of night, something may get out of hand that you'll be sorry for later. If I'm so worried about this, it's because our village has always had a good name. Am I showing you disrespect and asking for this? Such arguments, advanced by a young boy, were amazing. Many stopped dancing and went home. Others, more eager, stayed on a few more minutes, but being so few, they too decided to call it a night. Another time, in the evening, a sermon was to be delivered in the chapel of a hamlet not far from Becky. The chapel was only partially filled, while the square in front of it was crowded with men whose murmur reached the worshippers inside. Suddenly the blare of a trumpet shook the square. 
The boys leaped up from their pews and raced for the church door. Nobody could hold them back. The girls followed the boys, and shortly afterward, they were joined also by the women, curious to see what it was about. John also ran out into the square at such a spectacle, and elbowing his way through the crowd, took up his stand in front. All eyes turned to him because he was already well known for his acrobatic feats. With gestures, they pointed at the charlatan, as though to tell him that he had a competitor. John had not left the church out of curiosity, but to carry out a plan of his own. He moved to the center of the open square and challenged the charlatan to compete with him in games of skill. The charlatan mockingly looked over John from head to foot, but the crowd's applause at John's proposal made him realize he would damage his own reputation if he were to refuse the challenge. Shouts arose on all sides. Bravo! Good! Show what you can do! By general agreement, a certain feat was chosen for the test. I agree, John said. And now let's talk about the terms. This is what I propose. If you win, I'll give you a scudo. If I win, you are to leave this village immediately and never set foot here again during church services. Everyone, eager for the contest, shouted approval. I accept, answered the charlatan confidently. As things turned out, John won the contest, and the charlatan had to gather his equipment and leave as agreed. Then John turned to the crowd and announced, Now back to church! And he led them into the house of God. On another occasion, a stranger was talking to a group of men and boys, telling off-color jokes, and occasionally uttering words that bordered on blasphemy. This scandalous conversation distressed John, but he didn't know what to do, since he realized that nothing would silence the man or the ruckus laughter of his listeners. Two trees stood nearby, a little distance apart from each other. He took a rope and knotted one end. Then he flung first one and then the other end over a branch of each of the trees and drew the rope tight. He performed this feat in the twinkling of an eye. The crowd, noticing him, abandoned the stranger and gathered around John. He then swung himself upright and began to walk back and forth, as though he had a wide path beneath his feet. The show lasted until dark, when the crowd dispersed and went home. Thus, as a boy, John first carried out his mission with the means that divine providence had given him. The book of Proverbs tells us that God's omnipotence is constantly at play in the universe through his creative and conserving power, and that he delights in being with the children of men. God began, so to speak, to exhibit John before the world as the instrument that he wanted to use for his glory. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist with all of the stories we've done so far about St. John Bosco's youth, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Those who are familiar with St. John Bosco's supernatural dreams, which revealed the state of his oratory boy's souls, often forget that while these visions saddened him in part, they also assured him that most of his boys lived habitually in the grace of God. Everybody remembers his dream on hell, as well they should, but neglect relating his vision of heaven. An oratory boy that most people know about as St. Dominic Savio, because he was canonized, but I think there were many, many saints at the oratory, and today, through well-documented stories, I intend to prove it. 
The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. One day in 1871, as many boys who knew that Don Bosco would soon be going to Rome were crowding about him in the playground, one stood up on tiptoe and whispered into his ear, Say this and this to the Pope. When recreation was over, Don Bosco went up to his room and sent for that boy. Upon being asked to repeat what he had said but moments before, the youngster replied, I didn't tell you anything. Don Bosco went to Rome and forgot about the boy's message, but on his return to the oratory, the same lad came up to him and said, Don Bosco, you are to give the Pope this message. Please do tell him. Don Bosco again sent for him for questioning, and again the boy's reply was, I didn't tell you anything. I, I really didn't. He said it with so much candor that Don Bosco didn't insist, convinced that the Lord had spoken to him both times through that boy. When he went to Rome again, he gave the Pope the message. We do not know this boy's identity. We only know that he later became a Salesian, a priest, and a missionary. On another occasion, Don Bosco was preoccupied about a very important matter and undecided on what course to follow. While he was saying Mass, suddenly, at the elevation, in a flash, he saw the course of action that would seemingly solve his problem. At ease once more, he thanked God. After Mass, his altar boy approached him and said, Do what came to your mind at the elevation. Amazed, Don Bosco went up to his room and sent for the youngster. But he was in for another surprise, for, upon being questioned, the latter replied that he couldn't even remember having spoken to him after Mass. Other exceptional incidents proved the saintliness of many oratory boys. One day, while escorting a visiting priest to the altar of Mary Help of Christians, Don Bosco saw a lad suspended in midair, wrapped in adoration before the tabernacle at the rear of the main altar. Somewhat disconcerted by their arrival, the lad floated like a feather down to Don Bosco's feet and asked for pardon on his knees. Don't worry, Don Bosco told him. Just go and join your companions. Then, turning to the priest, he calmly remarked, one would assign such things to the Middle Ages. Yet they do happen today. Once, on entering the church through the main entrance at a time when it was empty, he saw one of his pupils high aloft, facing the large painting of Mary Help of Christians above the main altar. Duplicating the feet of St. Joseph of Cupertino, he had leapt into the air in an outburst of love to kiss Mary's image. Don Bosco himself spoke of these occurrences on several occasions. Monsignor Scotton heard him tell an equally astounding story that probably took place after 1874. One morning, a 12- or 13-year-old lad, without leave, walked up to Don Bosco's room and, bursting in with an air of authority, told him, Right. Don Bosco, quite used to this innocent boy's numerous charisms, took up his pen, and at the lad's dictation wrote down the names and surnames of boys, mostly from Emilia, a region of northern Italy, who had been enrolled at the oratory through a trick of the Freemasons for the purpose of corrupting their schoolmates and eventually enticing them to join their secret society. All these boys carried membership cards. The lad revealed all he knew in minute detail, and for this reason, the investigation that followed was child's play. In no time, 
the cabal was completely clear to Don Bosco. Before dismissing his heaven-sent messenger, Don Bosco wanted to know how he had discovered the plot. Overcoming his reluctance, the lad replied that for the past several days, our lord had showed him, as in a mirror, all he had told Don Bosco, adding that after Holy Communion that very morning, our lord had severely chided him for failing to tell Don Bosco. Because of their sanctity, Don Bosco had such great faith in his boy's prayers. At times, when someone asked him for a special grace, he would say, I'll have my boys pray. He and his boys were one in heart. Their combined prayers worked miracles. Mrs. Valaudi, a great benefactress of the oratory, begged Don Bosco to obtain from Our Lady the grace of going through her purgatory here on earth. She was frightened at the thought of the torments awaiting the souls not yet pure enough to be admitted to God's presence, and nothing could allay her fears. Don Bosco promised his help. He then prayed that her request would be fulfilled, and he had all the boys do likewise. Within a short time, the good lady was seized by atrocious pains that lasted well over two years. Afterward, she experienced an unalterable peace of mind that banished all her fears. She died a tranquil, painless death. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about an oratory boy named Zuka who received apparitions of Our Lady, just click on the video above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco gave some excellent advice for the new year, drawing from what he had learned in his supernatural visions. During three nights in December 1860, Don Bosco had what he called three dreams. It was the same dream repeating itself with new details every time. Don Bosco narrated it briefly as follows to all the boys gathered together at night prayers on New Year's Eve. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco began, For three consecutive nights, I found myself in the countryside of Rivalta with Father Joseph Cafasso, Silvio Pellico, and Count Charles Kays. The first night, we discussed current religious topics. The second night, we debated and solved moral cases relevant to the spiritual direction of young people. After having the same dream twice, I decided I would tell you about it, if it came to me again. Sure enough, on the night of December 30th, I found myself once more with the same people in the same place. Putting other matters aside, I recalled that the following night, the last of the year, I would have to give you the customary strena for the new year. The word strena means gift, and it was usually a word of advice from Don Bosco on how to improve the oratory boy's spiritual life, often with prophetic insight, as you can see in today's episode. Therefore, Don Bosco continues, I turned to Father Cafasso and said, Father, since you're such a dear friend of mine, please give me the strena for my boys. On one condition, he replied, first you must tell them to put their accounts in order. We were standing in a large room with a table in the center. Father Cafasso, Silvio Pellico, and Count Charles Case sat themselves at the table. As I had been requested by Father Cafasso, I went out to get my boys. They were all busy adding up figures on a tablet. 
As I called them one by one, they presented their papers to the above-named gentleman who checked the sums and either approved or rejected them. Quite a few boys were turned back, sad and worried. Those whose totals had been found correct were quite happy and ran out to play. Since the line of boys was long, the examination took some time, but it eventually came to an end, or so it seemed to me, until I noticed that some boys were still standing outside and weren't coming in. Why don't they come in? I asked Father Cafasso. Their tablets are perfect blanks, he replied. They have no totals to show us. This is a question of summing up all that one has done. Let them add up whatever they have done and we'll verify the totals. After all the accounts had been checked, I went outside with the three gentlemen. All the boys whose totals had been found correct were running about having a joyful time as happy as could be. You can't imagine how that sight cheered me. Some boys, though, just stood apart, wistfully watching the games. Some were blindfolded. Others had a mist about their eyes or a dark cloud around their heads. Smoke came from the heads of some. Others had a head full of clay or empty of the things of God. I recognized each boy. So clear is the picture in my mind now that I can name each one. I soon realized, too, that many boys were missing. Where can those boys be who had blank tablets, I wondered. I looked for them, but in vain. Finally, I spotted some boys in a distant corner of the playground. What a wretched sight they were. One lad was stretched out on the ground with the pallor of death. Others were seated on a low, filthy bench. Still others were resting on dirty straw mattresses or on the hard, bare ground. These were the boys whose totals had not been approved. They had various diseases. Their tongues, ears, and eyes were swarming with worms that ate into them. One boy had a rotting tongue. Another's mouth was crammed with mud. A third's breath was foul with pestilence. Other diseases afflicted the rest. One boy's heart was moth-eaten. Another's was rotten away. Others had all kinds of sores. One lad's heart seemed to be all chewed up. The whole scene was a veritable hospital. The sight shocked me, and I couldn't believe my eyes. How can this be? I kept asking myself. I went up to one boy and asked, Are you really so-and-so? Yes, he replied. That's me. What happened to you? It's my own doing. Flower from my own grist. I reaped what I planted. I questioned another and got the same reply. I felt terribly hurt, but was soon to be comforted by what I am about to tell you. Meanwhile, pitying these boys, I turned to Father Cafasso and begged for a remedy. You know what must be done just as well as I, he replied. Figure it out for yourself. At least give me a strena for the healthy ones, I insisted humbly but trustfully. Beckoning me to follow, he went back to the mansion and opened a door leading into a spectacular hall which was richly draped, glittering with gold and silver. Dazzling chandeliers of a thousand lights flooded it with blinding radiance. As far as the eye could see, it stretched endlessly in length and width. In its center stood a giant table laden with all kinds of sweets, oversized bittersweet cookies and biscuits, any one delicacy alone would have satisfied a person. 
At the sight, I impulsively made as if to run and call my boys to enjoy this bonanza, but Father Cafasso stopped me. Wait, he said, not everyone may enjoy those sweets, but only those whose totals were approved. Even so, the hall was quickly filled with boys. I started breaking up and handing out the cookies and biscuits, but again Father Cafasso objected. Not everyone here may have those, he said. Not all deserve them. And he pointed some boys out to me, those whose totals had been approved, but who had a mist over their eyes, or clay in their hearts, or whose hearts were empty of the things of God. Those two were excluded, just as those with sores who had not been allowed into the hall. I immediately begged Father Cafasso to let me give them some of the sweets too. They also are my dear children, I said, and besides, there's plenty. No, he repeated firmly. Only the healthy ones can savor these sweets. The others have no taste for these delicacies. They would only get sick. I said no more and began serving those who had been pointed out to me. When I was through, I gave out another generous helping to all of them. I must say that I really enjoyed seeing the boys eat with such relish. Joy shone on their faces and so transfigured them that they didn't look like the same boys anymore. The lads in the hall who had not been allowed to have any sweets stood in a corner, sad and mortified. I felt so sorry for them that again I begged Father Cafasso to let me give them some also. No, he replied, not yet. Make them get well first. I kept looking at them wistfully, as well as the many others outside. I knew them all. I also noticed that, to make matters worse, some had moth-eaten hearts. Turning to Father Cafasso, I said, Won't you please tell me what medicine to give them? Again, he replied, Figure it out for yourself. You know what to do. Again, I asked him for Estrena to give all the boys. Very well, he answered. I'll give you one. Turning about as if to leave, he exclaimed three times, each time in a louder voice, Watch out! Watch out! Watch out! With these words, he and his companions vanished. I woke up and found myself sitting in bed. My shoulders were as cold as ice. That's my dream. Make of it what you like. It's just a dream, but if anything in it is good for our souls, let's take it. However, I wouldn't want you to talk about it with outsiders. I told it to you because you're my children. I positively don't want you to tell it to others. Meanwhile, I assure you, I have you all present in my mind as I saw you in the dream. And I can tell who was diseased and who was not, who was eating those sweets and who was not. I'm not going to disclose each boy's condition here, but I will do so privately. Now here is the strena for the new year. Frequent and sincere confession, frequent and devout communion. Good night. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist with all of the dreams that we've covered so far on this channel, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. After listening to all the facts in this episode, you'll be convinced that prophetic dreams didn't only come to St. John Bosco while he slept, but also to those who knew him. In this story, Our Lady appears to a mother of a sick child and reveals how her son could be saved from death. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, 
a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Wednesday, December 1st, 1868, Don Bosco visited the Lenzo School and at the Good Night Talk urged the boys to put their consciences in order because during that school year, one of them would be summoned to God's judgment seat. Privately, he confided to a superior that the boy who was to die was in the second grade and that his name began with the letter V. One should note that Don Bosco had not yet met the new pupils. At the beginning of the Christmas novena, Don Bosco was called out of town, as we gather from a letter of Father Francesia to Mother Magdalena Galeffi in Rome. Don Bosco was away, he wrote. Rumor has it, it may even be certain that the oratory has received an exceptional favor from the Madonna. I may not yet tell you what it is, but I'll let you know as soon as I know more. What was this exceptional favor? It may refer to the fact that Don Bosco had been asked to bless a critically ill child. Countess Kays, the wife of Count Louis, who was the son of the oratory's great benefactor, dreamed one night that her son Charles was seriously ill. She was deeply grieved, for this was her firstborn. In her dream, she sent for the family doctor and then paid a visit to the Church of Mary Help of Christians. Seemingly, she saw Our Lady in person, just as she is portrayed in the painting above the main altar. Bring your most precious possession to my church, Our Lady told her, and your child will recover. She immediately found herself once more at the side of her very sick child. Mama, give me something to eat or I'll die of hunger, the little boy said. She fed him and the boy recovered. That was her dream. But before we hear if this dream actually came to pass, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that appears on the screen. It's a beautiful Mass said in the traditional Byzantine rite for all of your intentions. Now you don't have to become a monthly donor to have a Mass prayed for you, But if you do, you could receive excellent books written by St. John Bosco himself, like this one, Sacred History. And there are many other things that you could get as well, but you can read all about it if you click on the link. So please help me keep this channel ad-free and spread the message of Don Bosco far and wide. A few months later, after the Countess had almost forgotten her dream, her little boy began to feel weak and soon fell ill with typhoid fever. The family doctor was immediately summoned. He diagnosed the illness as very serious, but having other matters to attend to, he recommended an excellent young doctor from nearby Rivoli. The latter arrived and lived with them for a week, but the child's condition kept worsening. The countess then remembered her dream, prayed, and vowed to offer her most costly bracelet to the Church of Mary Help of Christians. Shortly afterward, The child, who had been dozing fitfully and refusing nourishment, suddenly aroused himself. Mama, he said, give me some tea and cookies. Since he had never taken tea before, the countess asked the doctor's advice. Give him whatever he wants, the latter replied. Nothing can make him any worse. The child drank the tea and had a few bites of cookies. From that moment, he began to improve and in a few days was well again. The first time he joined his parents at the table, he brought along his mother's bracelet. When shall we take it to the Madonna? He asked. 
A few days later, the countess and her child called on Don Bosco, who, on hearing the story, remarked, somewhat ironically, Countess, don't give much credence to dreams. Count Louis Kays stated, My wife had asked Don Bosco's blessing on our child. She was so happy at his recovery that, had Don Bosco requested 25,000 lira for the oratory, she would have obliged immediately. Don Bosco knew that asking would have been tantamount to receiving, and that I too would have consented, but he asked for nothing. Meanwhile, everyone at the oratory was awaiting the fulfillment of Don Bosco's prediction of November 10th, namely that a pupil would make the exercise for a happy death only one more time. The exercise was held on December 12th. A few days later, the student Paul Vecetta fell ill and died on December 21st. Besides the three predicted in the dream, six other pupils had died during that year. As December drew to a close, Don Bosco exchanged greetings with his principal benefactors. Among those thanking him for the prodigious effects of his blessing was the noble lady Cristina Petitore, who was renowned for her charity and piety. The Lord had tested her virtue with the premature deaths of several of her children. Widowed and with only one son, Joseph, still living, she feared that he too might encounter the fate of his brothers. She therefore called on Don Bosco to speak of her fears and beg his blessing on her son so that God might spare him. She had great hopes that he might become a priest, but Don Bosco smilingly told her, Don't be afraid. Your son will live and will be a great comfort to you, but he will not become a priest. His prediction was fulfilled exactly as he had said. Joseph would grow in holiness and kept in contact with Don Bosco, but he never became a priest. However, the boy who had been cured in the previous story, Count Charles Kays, would grow up and be ordained a Salesian priest in 1878. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go, boy. I'm going to tell you about a series of miraculous events connected with St. John Bosco that occurred around Christmas time in 1886. These stories involve a little girl and her brother dying of typhoid fever, a gift of money from above that saved the Salesians, and a miraculous apparition of Our Lady to offer words of hope to Don Bosco, but also to reprimand the evildoers at his oratory school for boys. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Just so that you won't be shocked at Our Lady's harsh admonitions later on in the story, I want to show you that Don Bosco was well aware of the problems going on in his oratory and fervently tried to correct them in his good night talks. He was a man who lived with both eyes wide open. On December 3rd, he addressed his oratory boys in the study hall after night prayers, saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says Holy Scripture. It also says, The proud and the arrogant are called ignorant. You know what I mean. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Obey your superiors readily and accept their advice willingly. Then you will certainly grow in knowledge. On another evening, he said to them, Occasionally, some of you ask me, 
How does Don Bosco come to know things no one ever thought could possibly be discovered? Is he inspired by God? <laughs> no, my dear boys. To know that someone is proud is enough to know that he is also immodest. I know this from books I have read and from 35 years of experience. If you wish to keep the virtue of modesty and offer it to Our Lady on her feast day, wear her medal and often say any of these short prayers. Mary conceive without sin, pray for us. Or, blessed be the holy and immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Or, Mary help of Christians, pray for us. On December 13th, he said, since it's not very late, we can talk about a few things. How is it that I'm always surrounded by new boys while only a few of the old ones come around? I don't mean that they all shy away from me. Most of them do have confidence in me and come around, but a certain number stay away. Mulling over the reasons why certain boys shun me, I'm inclined to believe that they're afraid of being called a squealer by some companions. Such name-calling is strictly forbidden. Anyone who has been warned and still continues to do so will be expelled. Imagine a ravenous wolf stalking our playground and heading for a boy to tear him to pieces. A companion shouts, watch out, run! But another lad retorts, shut up, you squealer! But the wolf will come after us too, the first protests. Shut up, don't be a squealer! What are we to say of those who let their companions be devoured because they fear being called names? Shout, letting your superiors and teachers know who the wolf is, so that none of your companions may become his victim. You have noticed that since my last talk, some of your companions have left. A few were expelled because of stealing, but nearly all the rest because of foul talk or scorn for our practices of piety or for those frequenting the sacraments. While I have no respect at all for these scoffers, I think very highly of the others and hold them very dear. Therefore, let each of you beware of belittling or disparaging them. Good night. Now, having proved to you that Don Bosco was well aware of the boy's spiritual problems and was in desperate need of help from above, I can move on to the incredible events and apparitions that occurred at the oratory in 1886. On November 4th, Don Bosco blessed the cassocks of 110 Salesian clerics who joined the swarm of 500 youngsters who were being trained in order to go and work in the missions of Patagonia. At the end of the clothing ceremony, a curious scene took place. All the new clerics marched through the playground as they left the chapel, each one carrying his own chair. This was a surprise even to Don Bosco, who asked Father Bianchi, who oversaw the novitiate, for an explanation. He replied that there was only one chair per person in the whole house, so that the clerics had to carry them whenever they went to the chapel, into the study hall, or to their bedrooms. The saint answered, smiling, Oh, I like that. This house is having a good start. On December 6th of that same year, Don Bosco told a strange story of divine goodness connected with the new novitiate. Father Bianchi absolutely needed 1,960 lire to meet a highly urgent debt. If it couldn't be obtained, the novitiate would be severely handicapped. He knocked on Father Dorando's door and asked him if they had the money to pay the debt. The distressed bursar replied, I have just this minute left Don Bosco, who gave me all the money there was in the house. There's nothing left. 
Caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, Father Bianchi hastened to Don Bosco's room. When our saint heard what he wanted, Don Bosco replied, Really, I don't know what to do to help you. I gave everything I had to Father Durando just now. But I believe that something was delivered since he left. But all the same, I don't believe it will be enough. He walked over to the desk, opened a drawer, and took out some money. They counted it. It amounted to 1,960 lire, exactly. But where did it come from? Was it some sort of heavenly gift? Don Bosco never said. But even more astonishing was a second incident of an entirely different kind, which occurred shortly after it. Among the novices clothed by Don Bosco, there was a young man from Marseille, Louis Olive. In December, he fell seriously ill with typhoid fever. Soon, Louis was moved to the oratory so that he could be better cared for. On Christmas Eve, Don Bosco called at the infirmary to see the patient toward evening. He told him, I assure you that Our Lady will cure you. Yet the doctors held very little hope of his survival. The novice's father arrived on the 28th, and he edified everyone he met with his resignation to God's will and his utter trust in the Lord. He had recently had proof of divine mercy in his family. One of his little daughters seemed about to die. Feeling her end near on December 9th, the little girl asked that a beretta of Don Bosco, which is a type of hat that priests wear, be put on her head. For some unexplained reason, they kept one of Don Bosco's berettas at their house. Whether they kept it as a relic of this great saint, or whether Don Bosco had forgotten it there, we'll never know. At any rate, we do know that the Beretta was brought out, unfolded, and placed on her head. A few minutes later, she told her mother that she felt better and that they could remove the Beretta if they wanted. Then she fell asleep and rested for a few hours. She hadn't been able to sleep at all ever since she had become ill. On the 18th, her father telegraphed Don Bosco to thank him for his prayers, adding, Claire has been much better for some days. We ask for your prayers for her good convalescence. When he left for Turin, her convalescence was progressing normally. So one day, at the end of dinner there with Don Bosco, he complimented him, to which the saint replied, We shall soon drink a toast in Marseille, when Louis will be fully recovered and seated at the head of the table. Nevertheless, five distinguished doctors had all declared that his son would soon die. But what the physicians were not able to accomplish was actually accomplished by her who is the salus animatum, the health of the sick. Unfortunately, I'm out of time for this episode, and if you'd like to hear how Our Lady came down from heaven to visit Don Bosco, please come back Friday for the final part of this story. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Did you know that Our Lady would come down from heaven and visit St. John Bosco from time to time? In today's episode, we'll discuss how she reprimanded certain evildoers at the oratory. She also reassured Don Bosco that Louis Olive would be cured of typhoid fever. If you're wondering who that is, you can watch part one of this story by clicking on the link at the top of the screen. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima, I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.
During the night of January 3rd, Don Bosco had a dream which he described as follows. I don't know whether I was awake or asleep. I didn't even notice the room or house I was in when an extraordinary light began to lighten up the place. After some kind of prolonged noise, I saw a person appear who was surrounded by many, many other people and moving toward me. The people and the ornaments they wore were so brilliant that any other light became like darkness, to the point that it was impossible to keep one's eyes upon any of those present. Then the person who seemed to be the guide for the others advanced a little and began to speak. Ego sum humilis ancilla quam dominus misit, etc. When translated, the Latin quotation reads, I am the lowly handmaid whom the Lord has sent to heal your ailing Lewis. He had already been summoned to his rest, but now, so that glory of God may be manifest in him, he must give thought to his soul and the souls of his family. I am the handmaid, for whom great things were done by him who is mighty, and holy is his name. Reflect carefully on this, and you will understand what has to happen. Amen. At these words, the dwelling returned to its former darkness, and all night long I hovered between waking and sleeping, but drained of strength and dazed. In the morning, I hastened to get news of young Louis Olive, and I was assured that he had undergone a genuine turn for the better after a restful night. The next night, he saw the same apparition once again. Speaking in Latin, she gave him several admonitions for the benefit of the congregation and the boys. Don Bosco wrote, The continuation of the words of her who called herself the Lord's handmaid. I dwell in highest heaven, that I might enrich those who love me and fill them with treasures. The treasures of adolescence are chaste words and actions. Therefore, you ministers of God, cry out, never cease crying out. Avoid ill-omened groups, specifically dirty talk. Dirty talk corrupts good morals. With the greatest difficulty are they corrected who indulge in idle and scurrilous words. If you wish to do something very pleasing to me, carry on good conversations among yourselves and give one another the example of good deeds. Many of you promise flowers, yet offer only thorns to me and my son." Why do you so often confess your sins while your hearts are always far away from me? Speak and do what is right, not what's bad. I am a mother and I love my children, and I abhor their sins. I will come to you again to lead some of you to true rest with me. I shall look after them even as a hen protects her chicks. You artisans, manufacture good deeds, not wickedness. Dirty talk is a plague circulating among you. You who are called to administer the Lord's heritage, cry out. Never grow tired of crying out until he comes to summon you to render an account of your stewardship. It's my delight to be with the children of men. But time is short, so have courage while you have time. On the morning of the 5th, Don Bosco sent for Father Lemoyne and told him everything. Father Lemoyne has left us a record of their dialogue. After telling him what he had seen and heard, Don Bosco went on, And now I have sent for you that you may give me some advice. Should I let the Olive family know what I have dreamt? You know that better than I do, Father Lemoyne answered. 
Our lady has always been so very good to you. Oh, yes, that's true. And so many of these dreams of yours have all been fulfilled to the letter. That's true, too. So, if you'll allow me, and I do this only to give glory to God, I will call them visions, for indeed they are. You're right about that, consented Don Bosco. Now, we have every reason to believe that this dream, too, continued Father Lemoyne, is a supernatural event which will come true, and that Olive, although the doctors have given up on him, will recover. Well, what advice do you give, then? asked Don Bosco. To use a little human prudence, replied Father Lemoyne. If you think it best, I would say that you could start circulating the rumor that Don Bosco has dreamt of Olive, that in the dream he felt that there was reason for high hopes. Well, yes, we can do that, replied Don Bosco. But, Father Bosco, please do me this favor. Write this dream down. I know that you have difficulty in writing, but it concerns Our Lady. If this comes true, there you have proof of Mary's maternal goodness. Well, I shall write it then. He then wrote what we have already reported above. The cleric Olive, who was seriously ill, had dreamt that Don Bosco had gone into his room to see him and had told him, be at ease, you'll come and see me in my room within ten days. The brightness of that dream left in that patient the conviction that Don Bosco had gone to him in person, and he refused to accept the opinion of those who denied it. He was already so much better by January 10th that his father left for France. Louis got out of bed on the 12th. On the 24th, he made his appearance in the Superior Council's dining room during dinner, and the superiors welcomed him with great joy. When his health was completely regained, he didn't go back to Folio, but, at Don Bosco's wish, returned to finish his novitiate in his own country. His health continued so satisfactorily that in 1906, he was able to participate in the first expedition of Salesian missionaries to China, where he exercised a bountiful apostolate until his saintly death on September 17, 1919, at the age of 52. Thank you all so much for watching. I just wanted to say that I won't be launching a Don Bosco story on Christmas Day because I don't think anybody should be hanging around on YouTube then and should probably be spending time with family and friends. But after Christmas, I'll be launching some compilations of the top Don Bosco stories out of the 144 that I've performed this year, and then we'll resume with new episodes in January. If you think you've missed any of the episodes, I'll be putting a link up to the playlist at the end of the video. Griffin and I want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all of the incredible support we've received on this channel in our first year of posting. I never dreamed it would be this big. I only pray to St. John Bosco that we can improve our method in order to pass on his spirituality even better next year. So until then, God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Merry Christmas.